The last words of famous people have been recorded for centuries and often provide uh, a revelation of their true nature. P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey's Circus asked one of his associates who had just come in from the showing in New York, which ended up being Barnum's last words. He said to his associate, he asked, what were the receipts from Madison Square Garden? Then he died April 1891. The famous short story writer O. Henry borrowed uh, the refrain from a song as he said his last words, and I quote, turn up the lights, I don't want to go home in the dark. Houdini, the, the escape artist, died of appendicitis, not from a punch into the stomach, which became legendary, but just before Houdini died, the man famous for escaping just about everything said, quote, his last words, I guess this thing is going to get me. Voltaire, the French deist, an opponent of Christianity, was asked on his deathbed as people came by, concerned, of course, because of everything he'd written against Christianity, if he would change his mind and recognize the deity of Jesus Christ. He would have nothing of it, and these were his last words, in the name of God, let me die in peace. None so tragic, perhaps more famous than the dying words of Elizabeth, the first queen of England, who said just before she died, all my possessions for a moment of time. Deathbed confessions have been interesting uh, revelations to the public as well as last words. I've read several recently. The famous Jewish musician Naomi Shemer admitted on her deathbed a few years ago that her best-selling song about Jerusalem was really a tune from an old Spanish lullaby which she had plagiarized. She'd been asked about it through her career. She denied it and then on her deathbed wanted to clear a conscience of it and, and, and admitted to it. Chris Sperling a few years ago confessed that his famous Loch Ness Monster photograph was fabricated. I don't know if that messes any of you up to know that, but it, it, he had used a toy submarine and then molded to it a long neck and a small head. He went down to a nearby lake and took a picture of it, and then he convinced a doctor, friend of what he had seen, allowed the doctor to independently develop the photograph, adding to its credibility, and it created a media storm, of course. Uh, at the age of 94, a few years ago, on his deathbed, he confessed that it was all a hoax. Just this past year, a deathbed confession solved the case of one murdered man. They had very few clues to go on. A neighbor had disappeared, was found later dead. Someone else in the neighborhood disappeared as well, though they weren't able to find him. His name was James Brewer. He fled the neighborhood, took on a new identity, ended up marrying a woman, became active in the church over the next 30 years, involved in Bible studies and everything else. But for 30 years, he, he carried the secret. And then he suffered, just this past year, a serious stroke. And the medical community, his doctor, said he had very little time to live. Before dying, he told his wife, called for the police, some detectives, and confessed to the crime that had weighed on his conscience for so long. Now, the only problem with this deathbed confession was that instead of dying, he recovered. He's now in jail in Tennessee. 
moral of the story is deathbed conversions or confessions work really good if you die after delivering them and instead of recovering. My view, one of the, one of the saddest confessions I've read recently is, was a letter written by Senator Ted Kennedy to the Pope, hand-delivered by President Obama when he visited the Vatican. Kennedy tried in his letter, and I read it, it's available, you can read it, to list his merits. Even though he was against his church in his pro-abortion stance, which he clung to throughout his tenure, he wrote to the Pope about his record of helping the poor and keeping his faith. Then he asked for prayer as he admitted he was an imperfect human preparing, I'm quoting, for the next passage of life. Without any gospel remedy or any biblical hope, The return letter came, dictated by the Pope to his assistant. A brief letter, you can read it as well. Thanking Kennedy for the letter, expressing concern for his illness, and then closing with the brief words in this letter, and I quote, Commending you and the members of your family to the loving intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I thought, how tragic. It's one thing to not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ when you're alive. It's another thing to not hear it when you're about to die. The most well-known deathbed confession, the most famous of all last words of anybody, the lips of any human being, in fact, the most often repeated words of a dying man are actually found in Scripture. And these particular words that I want to draw your attention to come from the the lips of a condemned felon. And the response of Jesus Christ to this man's deathbed confession give us a library of gospel hope and gospel truth. You'll find the scene in the gospel by Luke in chapter 23. What I want to do today is go back to this hill and watch two men... Two unlikely men, what we're calling conversions at Calvary. Today, the criminal next to Centurion. Let's just set the stage first before we take a look at this man and talk a little bit about crucifixion itself. Verse 33 reads, When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, that is Christ, and the criminals. One on the right... And the other on the left. The name Calvary, which may be translated for you in your text, comes from the Latin Calvaria. The Greek word used in the Greek New Testament is crania, which gives us our word cranium. The corresponding Aramaic word, which you may remember, is Golgotha. All three words... Calvaria, Crania, and Golgotha all mean the same thing, literally translated, the skull. Crucifixions were at a place everyone knew. It was really more a nickname than anything else. It took place at the skull. The reason for it being named this is never explained in the New Testament. The hillside may have physically resembled uh, a skull, like Gordon's Calvary, just near the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem, where many believe Christ was crucified. We're not sure. 
It's possible that the name simply grew out of the ugliness of this form of execution. You need to understand that that the cross was actually a permanent fixture on this hillside. Uh, You have to erase in your mind the pictures of men dragging Latin crosses through cobblestone streets. A cross would have weighed about 300 uh, to 350 pounds. The stipe, that is the vertical piece, was permanently anchored in this particular hillside as they were around the countryside. The criminal actually arrived carrying the horizontal beam, which would have been behind his neck and his arms draped over it, more than likely tied to it. That would have weighed 75 to 100 pounds itself. Uh, the, the beam was hollowed out in the middle, creating a mortise and tenon joint, and it would be slipped over the top of the stipe, the vertical piece. It was actually much shorter than the romanticized picture of the crosses that we see in pictures and movies. In fact, we have built one several years ago. According to, to specs, it would have been about six feet tall. You would have been near enough to spit or hit the person being crucified, their feet would only have been a foot or so above ground. The Persians invented this form of execution because they worshipped a goddess they named Mother Earth, the first to call her that. They didn't want to pollute their goddess with the dying flesh of a condemned criminal. And so they created this elevated system of execution. The Romans were said to have perfected in horror what the Persians created. One of the things the Romans added to the vertical stipes, the vertical beam, was what they called the sedulum, the saddle. It was a block of wood anchored to the middle piece, that vertical piece, the stipes. The saddle was nailed there and stayed there upon which the criminal was propped so that the nails wouldn't tear through their hands his nail the nails would have been driven into their hands and then he would have been lifted up with his arms and it would have been raised over and dropped down then the criminal would have been raised propped up on the saddle while they turned his ankles and nailed through the ankles to the beam We have skeletal remains where feet were placed on both sides of the beam and nailed directly into that way. Horrifying way to die. The saddle allowed the criminal to rest his weight throughout the entire ordeal and it prolonged the suffering. It allowed the victim to live for a longer period of time. In fact, those who were crucified usually died from a loss of blood or even starvation or thirst. One author commented that many criminals during the days of Christ, when this was popular to execute criminals, many criminals were known to have hung on the cross for up to a week until they died, usually raving mad. It was such a horrific way to die, Roman citizens were guaranteed, no matter what they did, they would never die by crucifixion. The Gentile world never used the word, rarely if ever, the word cross. It's little wonder that the word for extreme pain and suffering, excruciating, 
means literally out of the cross. Now oftentimes, before the person had died, the crosses would be needed for other criminals, so to speak, standing in line. In fact, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, commented that at the year of our Lord's death, more than a thousand more individuals were crucified on crosses by Rome. So if the soldiers wanted the criminals taken down and use of the, of, of the crosses, they, they would break their legs, push them off the saddle, they would not be able to raise themselves up to breathe, and they would quickly die. That's exactly what will happen to the two thieves hanging on either side of Christ. And by the way, just as a side note, overlooked prophecy indicated very clearly that no bone would be broken of the Messiah. Psalm 34 and Zechariah 12, he would be pierced instead. Why? Well, you go all the way back to Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 as God delivers the details about celebrating the Passover lamb. And one of the uh, specifics uh, related to that is that they were not allowed to break any bone of the lamb. So Jesus Christ, who is the lamb of God, come to be sacrificed for the atonement of our sins, will, like the Passover lambs before him, not have any bones broken as he pictures for us the final Passover sacrifice. Now Luke informs us that, that this Passover lamb, the Lord, is not only enduring the horrors of crucifixion and the pain of it all, but vile mockery and rejection. In fact, Matthew's gospel informs us that the high priests, the scribes, and the elders are there on the hillside mocking Christ personally. You have to understand, this is the Sanhedrin. They would deliver the verdict. They wouldn't, they wouldn't follow the criminal. It wasn't their practice, but they hated him so. We find them at this scene mocking him. Luke shows us that they are fully participating, in fact, even inciting the mob onward. Look at verse 35. The people stood by looking on and even the rulers, this is the Sanhedrinists, were sneering at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Messiah, the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, his anointed one, his chosen one. By the way, this is not a, this is not a veiled affirmation of his ability to have saved others. That isn't what they meant. This is a clear denial that he saved others, and they're wanting to make sure that the people, the mob that's there, and everyone as the news will travel outward, they're making sure that people connect the dots that he did not save anybody else, and it is proven by the fact that he cannot save himself. That's what, that's what they meant. They missed the point, didn't they? No Israelite for, for centuries killed the Passover lamb and then hurled insults at it because it couldn't stay alive. Now they rejoiced in the death of the lamb. It allowed them to live. But here the rulers and people are mocking the Lord, save yourself so that you can prove you can indeed save us. The mockery is absurd. The Passover lamb does not prove his worth by resisting death, 
but by dying. The fact that Jesus could have, but did not come down from the cross, fulfills his purpose in coming as the Lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. 1 John 2, 2. It is the very fact that Jesus did not save himself that he can save us. This redemptive irony is about to be personalized now in a very unique way. Now Luke has already informed us that Christ was crucified between two thieves. Both of them had the ability to watch Christ. Both had the ability to hear his prayer for forgiveness of his executioners. Both had heard him address God in a way nobody addressed him as father. An unheard of intimacy. Both of them had the ability to read Pilate's superscription. In fact, by the providence and plan of God, it would be written in the three major languages of the world, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Both of these thieves took it all in. They are suffering unbelievable pain on their own They are on their way to certain death. They they end up joining in and shouting to Jesus to save himself and also them. But when Jesus offered them no escape and made no reply, they joined in the mockery of what they perceived to be Christ's inability. How do you, in the process of dying such an excruciating death, have the thought to mock another. But this is the drama of redemption played out on three crosses. Little doubt in my mind, as other other students of the Word have pointed out in their commentaries and writings as they've studied crucifixions, that for these three stipes to be chosen, these three crosses that was arranged and staged to further humiliate Christ, Hanging him between two criminals was their way of making sure the crowd identified him as nothing more than a religious fraud, an imposter who was finally exposed. But again, what they, what they overlooked is even more prophetic fulfillment for Isaiah the prophet prophesied that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. Literally, he'd die among criminals. The word used here by Luke to identify these two men might be translated for you as evil workers. Matthew's gospel helps. We won't turn for the sake of time, but he uses a word that is more specific to what exactly they were doing that was evil. It's the word lestes, which identifies them as not just thieves, not just petty thieves, but as literally armed robbers. Violent robbers. In fact, the word refers to to even more than that. It was a a word reserved for hardened criminals who didn't just steal, but stole at the expense of someone else's life. It was also a word used to refer to a revolutionary. That is, someone who stole from the government, in this case the Roman government, 
in order to not only hurt the government, to cripple the government, giving us a clear indication these men are Jews, revolutionaries, uh, wanting the control of Jerusalem by the people of Israel only. They stole and they killed to support their cause. It's the same word, by the way, to use to describe Barabbas. These were revolutionaries. We would think of using the word terrorists. They killed to promote their cause. Little doubt then that these were companions of Barabbas who would have in fact been hanging on the cross with them. He would have occupied perhaps the middle cross. Jesus Christ literally took his place, played out there on that hillside. And he also took your place in mine. The Apostle Peter writes that Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross, 1 Peter 2.24. Now, according to Mark's gospel account, one of these revolutionaries never let up with his insults, his verbal injuries, his mockery. He expressed no concern for God. He represents the unbelief of the world. He, he, he expressed no, no repentance, no guilt, no concern for forgiveness. He's about to die, but he doesn't care that he's going to meet God. He might not even believe it. And it's interesting to me that he will hear no word from Jesus, no warning, no argument. No defense and no promise. Only silence. Notice in verse 39, now Luke records a conversation between these two former comrades. One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, Christ, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In other words, we've been waiting for the Messiah. We've been waiting for that one to show up to take control of our land and give it back to us. If you're really that one, save yourself, prove it, and get us out of here because we've been doing what we believed you'd want us to do. All bound up in this this hurling abuse. Mark's gospel informs us that both of them initially were saying these things. But one of them now, Luke indicates eventually stopped. We're not told when. The one just keeps on with the mob hurling abuse and the other one grows quiet. Just just stops. Evidently troubled. He'd taken it all in too. As we'll learn in a moment, he's convicted. He's He's overwhelmed with his guilt. He's anguished. He's awed. He's convinced. The other answered, verse 40, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? In other words, shouldn't you stop insulting this man that's going to die and start thinking about the fact that you're going to meet God? Shouldn't he get ready? 
Shouldn't you think about a few hours from now or a few days from now? Have you somehow overlooked the fact that you are dying too? And then he adds these words, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. You see, something had happened in the heart of this thief, something miraculous, something marvelous. This is the vocabulary of repentance and faith. We are being punished justly. Very few criminals, even when they're caught, say, you know what, I deserve to, I deserve to go to jail. We deserve it. That's another way of saying I'm a sinner. I, I have no merit. I, I, I deserve to die. He probably was overwhelmed with his past. He'd taken the lives of people. He'd murdered and robbed and He's overwhelmed with that sense of guilt and sin. And he says, I am bankrupt effectively. I have nothing to offer to God. I'm dying justly. But don't fail to notice that confession in the last part of verse 41. Did you notice that? But this man has done nothing wrong. I love that. There on that hill stands the highest court of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. Rank-and-file individuals, people who cared about the law, uh, people who agreed with the sentence of Christ, people who had been betrayed by their leaders into believing false witnesses and distorted testimony. And now they're all hearing from the lips of a condemned felon, you're all wrong, he's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. I couldn't help but think of the fact that when Jesus Christ was born, who did he use to tell the news that a Savior had been born? He used shepherds. They were ceremonially unclean. They were unable to to worship in the temple because of their involvement with with blood and and animal sacrifice. They they raised the Paschal lambs, and and they they were unclean. They're the ones to through whom God delivered the message. And now Jesus is about to die, and the one that God uses to deliver the testimony of his innocence is a ceremonially unclean criminal. I happen to love that. Through the lips of a sinner, the innocence of Christ is stated along with the declaration, oh, by the way, he happens to be a king. The placard is telling the truth. He's the king of the Jews. Now, two of the most profound statements ever communicated between the Savior and the sinner occur in the next few lines of Scripture. Look at verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, he had been mulling this thing over. The meaning of those words, what he heard Christ say, the compassion and forgiveness of the Lord, the hurling abuse of the Sanhedrin that obviously in their protestations signaled something unique. He'd no doubt heard of him as well. All the people had. 
They'd heard of his healing and his miracles, the fact that he brought people back to life from death. They all came back, and he's been, he's been thinking about this now. And now he says, Lord, it says you are the king of the Jews. I believe. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. <laughs> Wait a second. Are you kidding? Does Jesus look like he's heading into a kingdom? Does he look like a king? In fact, in the presence, here, here's the amazing faith of this, this repentant sinner. In the presence of the religious leaders, that he was probably working as a revolutionary to elevate because he respected them and their, their right to rule. In the presence now of the highest court, in, in defiance to their mockery of Christ as being a fraud, now isolating himself even further by attacking the, the words of his comrade with whom he'd risked his life over and over again against every possible evidence that he could see. Jesus was surely anything but a Messiah. He's anything but a real king. He's certainly not an heir to a kingdom. Come on, are you blind? What faith for this dying man to trust a dying king. Maybe you're here today and you're saying in your heart, you know, if I only had evidence that Christ was really the Son of God and the coming King, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You need nothing more than what you already have. You do not lack evidence. You lack interest. And you lack the humble admission of everyone in this auditorium who mirror the humility and brokenness of sinners who understand they're going to meet God and they are not ready. Are you? Against everything that could be seen, against all the evidence against the apparent failure of this one who claimed to be Messiah. By faith, this dying thief trusted that that dying man beside him was actually the king who would reign in his future kingdom. <laughs> what a conversion. He's the most unlikely person. This is the most unlikely place. And he's about to receive an unlikely promise. Jesus now turns his bloodied, beaten face toward this repentant sinner and says, verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Wow. Amen? Isn't that great? Let, let me make very quickly four observations about this statement. There, there's a library here. First, this was an authoritative promise. Truly I say to you. Truly. It's another way of saying truthfully. It's another way of saying, and Jesus did it often, I'm telling you the truth here. Hear what I'm about to say 
happens to be the truth. Which I find extremely ironic in the midst of this crucifixion scene. Jesus just so happens to be in the process of being crucified for being a liar. An imposter. A fake. The Supreme Court has condemned him for lying about who he was. Now if he was, this, this is the time to, to, to clear his conscience. He knows he's about to die. This is the time for his deathbed confession. Now he has another man hoping in, in all futility in him. Now that would be the time, if he has any character at all, to say, okay, look, it's time for me to come clean. I'm sorry for taking the claims of being God the Son this far. Listen, pal, there's really there's nothing I can do for you. I mean, can't you see? I'm not a king. I'm not an heir to a kingdom. It's time to stop the charade. And Jesus Christ says, I'm going to tell you the truth. I am a king. And there's a kingdom. And you're going to be with me. Notice further, he says, truly I say to you, today, this is an authoritative promise with, secondly, an immediate transition. Today, that man could have lived for three days. He could have lived for a week. How did Jesus know he was going to die today? Because Jesus was who he said he was. Today, this day, Christ promises immediate consciousness of life beyond death. There's no limbo. There's no soul sleep. There's no purgatory. Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth. You're going to die today, and today there will be an immediate transition of your spirit from earth to glory. You see, the thief was hoping for some kind of help in the future. Lord, remember me one day. I don't know. It's probably a long way away from now when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, well, let's just make that today. What do you say? This very day. This thief who is agonizing over every breath hears from Christ an authoritative pronouncement of an immediate transition. Thirdly, by means of an intimate connection. Jesus said, truly, I say unto you, today you will be with me. I mean, what right would this condemned sinner ever hope to have to be with the king? He didn't ask. He really didn't ask uh, if he could be with Christ. He just said, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Would you just let me in? I'd, I'd like to be there. And Jesus says, uh, it, it's more than that. You will be with me. You see, the gospel, this is, this is the gospel, my friend. It is offered to undeserving sinners, to those who say, we are justly condemned. It, it, is, it is also offered, and I'm so glad this particular paragraph is 
is given to us, especially by Luke, uh, the medical doctor, and he, he, he was tuned into a lot of this kind of stuff anyway. He worked with life and death. The gospel is, is given to people who can't guarantee anything of their own, have nothing to offer. The thief had absolutely nothing by way to earn his way into this kingdom. He couldn't even show Jesus Christ how thankful he was. He couldn't join a church. He couldn't get baptized. He couldn't give money to charity. He had no time to get cleaned up, reformed. He had no time or ability to to prove that he had repented of his old lifestyle. He couldn't set his criminal record straight. He couldn't make restitution to the Roman Empire. He, He couldn't apologize to family members of those he'd killed. He couldn't do one thing for God, country, family, religion, nothing. The only thing he could do is believe and die. All he could do is die. And aren't you glad that's all he could do? But because of his deathbed confession, he dies with an authoritative pronouncement of an immediate transition by means of an intimate connection. Fourthly, which leads to a glorious destination. Truly I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise refers to a garden. It's the glory of heaven. It's an Old Testament phrase used three times. It refers to a walled garden that belonged to kings, protected Luxurious, beautiful. This is the word chosen by the Lord to speak to this man who, by the way, is an Old Testament saint. We're still in the Old Testament. And he uses a word this man would understand. When a king in his day and time wished to do one of his subjects a really special honor for maybe an hour or a day, He would make that subject what they called, and I quote, a companion of the garden. Which meant he was chosen for a brief moment of time, 30 minutes, 5 minutes, an hour, a day, or whatever, to walk in the royal garden with the king himself. So Jesus is basically answering him with more than a word. He's he's graciously saying to this bankrupt sinner, yes, you will be with me. I'm a king, and and I have a, a garden, and you will walk with me there. The godly British evangelical bishop of the 1800s, John Riley, wrote of this text, was Christ condemned, though innocent? It was that we might be acquitted though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear the crown of glory. Was he stripped of his raiment? It was that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a sinner? It was that we might be reckoned innocent. 
Was he numbered among the transgressors? It was that we might be justified from transgression. Did he die at last the most painful and disgraceful of deaths? Yes. It was that we might live forevermore, exalted to the highest glory. You know, you don't see it played out any more clearly in Scripture than while on these three crosses, unbelief, faith, redemption, and Christ delivering grace and mercy to a condemned, dying sinner who by faith made a true and genuine confession. I close with the words of the dying, devout astronomer and believer, Copernicus, who said this before he died, and I quote him, I do not ask you, Lord, for the grace that you gave the Apostle Paul, nor can I ask for the grace that you granted the Apostle Peter, but the mercy and grace which you showed to the dying thief. Show that. To me. Father, thank you for the truths of this scene that we've just barely touched down on. We thank you for your plan, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your willingness, your humility to embrace and receive and experience death, even death on a cross. We thank you for the fulfillment of Scripture in just the few things that we've seen. From old to new, your word stands true. If you're here today, by the way, and you've come to faith in Christ, you've recognized you are poor in spirit, you're bankrupt, you have nothing to offer God, would you thank the Lord for his promise Happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The inheritance of God, the coming eternal state, a new heaven and earth. Would you thank him for your salvation and for opening your eyes, blinded by the God of this world, so that your insults and unbelief have turned instead to praise? If you're here today without Jesus Christ in your life as Lord and Savior, you need the truths applied to your own heart and life. If you know enough of the gospel, you don't need to do anything but sit there and receive Christ. Admit to him you are justly condemned. You have nothing to offer God. You place your faith in Christ alone.